Kate Morrison, it's great to have you uh, on the show. It's great to be talking to you uh, after uh, so long. Uh, you're a dear old debate friend, and uh, you've also been doing some really, really interesting stuff that has made our our paths cross, I think, in the work that we're doing on Adriel versus the oligarchs. Last week, we talked to Sang uh, from Outreach Circle, which is uh, an organization that does relational organizing uh, and uh, creates uh, tech and apps for that. Uh, we talked to Emily and Ari the week before from Openfield, uh, which again is dedicated to this grassroots campaign technology. And uh, these are all folks and organizations that are affiliated with a lot of the campaign and movement uh, people that you've been talking about. I think that from my position as a rhetorician, what is interesting about what the Sanders campaign is doing uh, is that it moves away from a lot of the techniques that focus on essentially mass communication, one-to-many uh, communication. So uh, I'm a rhetorician, and we're very old uh, as a discipline. But the study of political rhetoric in the 20th century sort of focused on adapting basic principles of public speaking to a mass communication, one-to-many world when addressing campaign rhetoric. Uh, and then uh, what we see in like the 21st century is another realignment to sort of digital many-to-many -many communication. But for, for my folks, there was sort of a, a lack of vocabulary to really talk about how this fundamentally changes communication. So, um, for example, in like a 2018 special issue of Communication Quarterly uh, that was specifically focused on the 2016 campaign, most of the articles address traditional text structures and gatekeepers like stump speeches from the candidates, endorsements and support speeches, presidential debates, aggressive negative campaigning, political advertising, political reporting. Even the work that addressed the new digital many-to-many -many capacity did so by centering the distribution of mass media text. So like, oh, look, news feeds and the creation of echo chambers. But that doesn't really speak to, I think, what we're seeing in the Sanders campaign, which uh, enables a sort of moving away from that uh, original mass communication model, right? Uh, and that does uh, a couple of things, right? It, um, it really changes the way that we think about how affiliation functions. Um, and usually, if, if you were to talk to people in the media, they would probably give you a, a, a response that's very similar to the way a rhetorician would talk about it, right? So how do we understand and think about what the campaign's doing? Well, they're looking at the same stuff. They're looking at the same text, stump speeches, endorsements, etc. And so what I find fascinating here is that when I engaged and, and participated in the uh, Educators for Bernie national organizing call, is I saw a mode of communication that was different from the stuff I had been trained in, uh, but was incredibly familiar to me from another vein of life. So uh, I'm Union, I'm American Association of University Professors, AUP, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm on the membership committee. So we do the very unglamorous work of getting new people 
to sign up and then going back to the old holdouts, which because we're a state university uh, is incredibly important post Janus, right? We don't have fair share fees anymore. We actually have to make sure that our membership is as robust as possible. Right, uh, right. And so having those conversations in somebody's office, figuring out like who knows these people the best and may uh, be the best face to engage with them, talking about strategies of communication with them, uh, that seemed in, in my union work to be really, really familiar. And I think that uh, what is most exciting to me about shifting at least the way that I think about these things to a more, uh, away from the, the rhetoric world and more towards uh, like organizational communication and essentially uh, interpersonal communication is that it sets you up with skills that enable you to take further action. And I think that that was the thing that really got me thinking about what was fundamentally transformative about the way in which the Sanders campaign is engaging its volunteers, essentially teaching them the basic skills that they need for organizing that I was already seeing uh, in the union world. There, there still seems to be a lot of centralized political uh, communication or, you know, sort of mass communication or mass messaging uh, going on, obviously in a way that is very different in the Bernie campaign, I think, than other campaigns, but still, you know, he, he uh, you know, he will say things and uh, uh, you have tweets, you know, read by millions of people and etc. Et um, so does that change the nature of that centralized messaging or uh, does it uh, simply integrate it into something different? What happens with that um, uh, uh, messaging? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question because I do think, um, if I'm not careful, it winds up sounding like these are either or decisions and they're not, right? Uh, these conversations are still taking place in a world in which uh, the, the centralized mass communication uh, strategies are already there and already uh, engaged. I think that what it does is, is it comes closer to, as you describe it, like a holistic sort of approach in terms of taking these abstracted sort of issues, you know, uh, policy questions, uh, Medicare for all, or uh, the Marshall Plan for Education, these uh, that are uh, approached from sort of 50,000 feet and uh, personalizes them and does so intentionally, right? So, uh, for example, if I were to talk to people in my network, unsurprisingly, between both my colleagues and my friends who I met in graduate school and things like that, is really uh, educator heavy, right? Uh, that in those cases, what you would do is not lay out your sort of bullet points about what the Marshall Plan is good for and why it's better than others uh, when you've got a lot of uh, uh, left-leaning uh, friends in academia. If they're not with you, they're probably Warren voters, right? Um, that drawing those hard and fast distinctions and attempting to essentially out-debate them 
we know from both like social science research and even from everyday anecdotal interactions that those wind up not being uh, particularly persuasive. And this is the same message that we get uh, from the campaign as well. So like when they started talking about that, I was like, oh yeah, I know all that research is definitely true, right? Um, that here instead, the goal is to start a conversation from the conditions that you actually live and work in. In those moments, right, those conversations begin to link up the experiences that people are having in an everyday sense, the struggles that they are already engaging with, with broader structures and struggles to start to recast how they think about those policies. These uh, communication technology uh, advocates that we've been talking to for the last couple of weeks um, are developing uh, applications for the for canvassing uh, that are attempting to capture deeper conversations, uh, to have follow-up conversations, to nurture uh, relationships with folks in neighborhoods rather than having them be one-offs, uh, even in primaries or even in, you know, really rapid campaign seasons. Uh, they're doing a lot of shared platforming and a lot of shared mapping uh, with lots of prompts uh, that or try to emphasize uh, this interrelatedness uh, of of people's stories and needs. And I'm a I'm kind of I'm I'm not like a luddite, but I'm definitely not uh, necessarily a techno utopian, and a lot of this stuff actually sounds kind of promising to me. And I'm wondering if you feel like uh, this is particularly on the left, uh, and particularly with uh, Bernie's campaign now. Uh, but that this is a gateway to uh, maybe a whole new way of doing things uh, when we campaign. I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, I also am sort of uh, uh, a skeptic uh, when it comes to, I, I won't say technological uh, a adoption, but uh, I'm definitely not a utopian. <laughs> right? um, and so I, I had had actually a little bit of skepticism about the way uh, the the burnout functioned right, uh, and it was really only through uh, both the 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 training and the organizing call and then a follow up meeting I had uh, with other people who had been on the call in person uh, in in Providence that it became clear like what role this particular platform was functioning on. I can't speak to the others, but uh, that it was essentially just helping as an organizing tool for you, right? Like here's uh, like a little day planner or other sorts of extensions that we would use to, to uh, bring some order to the chaos of our existence. Here's a way to sort of uh, give you order and clarity and focus on how to build those relationships. And I think that that broader look at those conversations and how they work is incredibly important. You get a lot of political theorists who like to sort of um, snort down their uh, sleeve at the suggestion that people have uh, coherent political ideologies. And to a certain extent, that's true, but that only means like, do they align with this abstract set of circumstances or, or, or conditions that we have defined 
as being indicative of this particular political ideology. And I think that when you have those deeper conversations, you see that this isn't stupid people being chaotic, right? That these beliefs and orientations come from uh, places of reason and of, uh, of lived experience. And that those reasons and that lived experience is actually far more nuanced, far deeper, and far more interesting, really, than the kinds of um, abstract categories that we put together and then sort of slap a label on. So I think that it brings a kind of coherence to the way that people think about politics that may not align with our previous understandings of how these models should work and what it means to be internally politically consistent and shows what, what a real consistency looks like for someone that has to live in these conditions, often conditions that are themselves inherently deeply contradictory. And we can have conversations that are more meaningful, that sort of open the field, and that make politics seem like it's something that addresses our, our lived conditions rather than something that sort of happens to us. Uh, do you ha have anything that you need that you would like to pitch, uh, draw people's attention to, uh, hawk, uh, or otherwise self-promote? Yeah, I, I guess I would suggest, as someone who is still very much a debate person, uh, if you have, and, and someone who's also uh, involved in urban debate leagues, uh, if you've got uh, urban debate leagues near you, if you happen to be near uh, a city uh, and you want to engage, even if you don't have debate experience, I would strongly encourage you to do it. Uh, and if you are involved with uh, urban debate leagues recently at the Rhode Island Urban Debate League, we are looking at uh, really changing our programming and building models of debate that work for us while also creating opportunities for public debate where students can really engage directly and make uh, interventions into the public sphere. So if you happen to be involved with uh, either uh, college programs, high school programs, urban debate leagues, uh, asking the question, what can we do to make this a, uh, a place and a space that not only trains people for argumentation and advocacy in the future, but creates conditions and possibilities for them to be effective political agents now? Because uh, certainly the youth know we need all hands on deck. Thanks to Professor Kate Morrison for joining us on the show. Uh, again, we're really dedicated to helping folks understand how to uh, organize better uh, with and without technology, but uh, hopefully with uh, marrying the best of both worlds. So I was reading a few different articles and, and people were sending them to me uh, about Facebook's oversight board, which we discussed uh, a few episodes ago now. Um, but Facebook this week came out with uh, the bylaws and more information about this oversight board and they even named uh, an executive who will run the staff uh, for this uh, kind of quasi-judicial body at Facebook. Um, and one of the articles was in Wired. I also read what I consider something of a rebuttal in The Interface, which is Casey Newton's uh, newsletter. He's from The Verge. Um, and I also you know, read the blog post and um, 
I have some pretty strong thoughts. The Wired article was called Why Mark Zuckerberg's Oversight Board May Kill His Political Ad Policy, which is really, uh, I think, missed, uh, missed the, or misinformed uh, readers, actually. Um, but That's unfortunate because the title uh, sounds hopeful. It what does, was it, it does. About it that, what, what was it about it that, that you feel like it gets it wrong? Yeah, well, if you read the Facebook post and if you've been following this oversight board, all it's charged with doing is making rulings on specific pieces of content. Now, of course, that could lead to uh, much wider implications. You know, people have talked about issues such as uh, mothers breastfeeding and getting their content taken down, right? Um, and, you know, maybe Facebook would change the policy if this new quasi-independent, uh, and I say that because Facebook's paying for it, uh, oversight body, and I also put oversight in scare quotes because of what I'm about to tell you. All you have to do is look at the flowchart that Facebook put together called implementation and response, and it says the the oversight board will make a decision. Um, and I don't want to read all of this because it's it's, but it says Facebook will bring together team members from across the company, including product policy, operations, legal, and others, to review the board's content decision and policy recommendation. Okay, and then it does break down into things they will do as part of that review and things they may do. Uh, it's the headlines are take action on the board's binding content decision. So they're saying they'll be bound on specific pieces of content, like a specific mother with a specific picture of breastfeeding, right? But and then the, it says, well, I, I will, I'm sorry. Let me just I run, run through it. That, and, and that's I, already wrong. There's already an, something incorrect about that. Well, uh, it's, that it's, I saw because okay uh, tell me tell me well it's because um the the board only like the board reviews cases uh like any other members it, is what it sounds like to me in this other article and and that uh, they can uh and it says they can ask facebook to use their decisions as precedent for the millions of other reviews right that are going on but facebook doesn't have to do that and if Facebook doesn't do that, they have to, I guess, explain their decisions. So it's not even true that they, you know, that that uh, that that those decisions get to shape uh, a wide array of of future decisions. Right. Right. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And that's where Wired's uh, headline is just, um, you know, it's it's a it's a, just a terrible headline because they talked about the political ad policy because I think that's one of the hottest things in kind of the intelligentsia, you know, both tech and politics and advertising are impacted, right? So there's a lot of discussion, it's a hot topic, but this board will have nothing to do with the political ad policy. It will rule on specific ads that get taken down on whether they can get put back up. And then it may also do the reverse, which is something that uh, stayed up that should get taken down. But Facebook's only going to respond to that specific content. Then they have all of this like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, we used to call it greenwashing when oil companies did it. I, I have to think of what the term is for this washing. But basically, we now have Facebook has bought out the fact checkers, and now they bought themselves a court, which will make rulings, which they will consider. So Facebook will consider them. So basically, uh, this is, people have been calling this the Supreme Court for content. And no, it's, it's like the, uh, you know, what's the lowest level of court? It's like or the Supreme Non-Binding Advisory Board. <laughs> Supreme Non-Binding Advisory Board. I know it's such a ridiculous thing. So 
been reading about that. We'll throw some links up in the show notes. Um, another article that came out this week, which I thought was just a great piece of journalism, was from Julie Carey Wong and the staff of The Guardian in San Francisco. Um, and they've put together um, uh, a big analysis of uh, the uh, Donald Trump Facebook operation. And they're using Facebook data. The, the uh, article has some good points about where that data is lacking. Like, for example, uh, Donald Trump uh, actually ran 218,000 ads in 2019. And uh, the, the um, analysis from Julia, she said she, they couldn't even get all of the images for all of that content, especially not in a way, for example, that you could search the the content of those images, which I think Facebook has some capacity to search um, because, uh, you know, they already flag uh, certain content items, even if they're written in text in, uh, in images when you run ads. So um, very interesting. Uh, one thing that, I mean, a couple of things that really jump out to me, uh, one is 159,000 of those ads were seen fewer than a thousand times. So they're doing hyper micro-targeting. The other thing is just there's a, a broad uh, distillation of the article is that most of the 2019 ads were oriented towards collecting personal data. Uh, and this is the stuff that, that the Trump campaign then uses to uh, make turnout projections and plans and also to solicit donations uh, from people through other media, like uh, they'll send mail, they'll uh, they'll text you, they'll call you, um, they will, um, uh, they probably won't come to your door for donations. Um, so super interesting. And um, I want to get your thoughts. And then there's one more thing that's really funny about how the Trump and Bloomberg campaigns are doing the same thing. Uh, and then there's, there's actually some stuff that's really not funny. But what sticks out to you in this uh, analysis or this big piece of uh, data journalism, Matt? I have a couple of thoughts. The first is that uh, is my thought about uh, the the age of take this poll political advertising, um, mm. which you know is one of the examples in the article. Take this poll, and of course the poll is a poll. You know you're being fished uh, in uh, to uh, uh, you know uh, to to get hooked and and to get right. Uh, they don't care about the outcome. Or, they care yeah, about exactly. your your the, uh, the, the action. The is bogus, take. and it's right. and it is and so to me the the distance between or the steps between that and have dinner with the president uh, or breakfast with the president, I think is, you know, it's not really, it's a pretty thin membrane to me. And so I'm struck as I'm reading the article by the fact that all of these different things were things that uh, in, in their own individual ways were done by a lot of sleazy um, uh, groups uh, before uh, Trump sort of right affiliate marketers to do all of them on steroids operators yeah yeah so so trump ends, ends up doing all of these all of these things and doing them on steroids really uh you know uh, going to the edge sometimes crossing the edge you know it's a game of what you can get away with and what you can't and right now you can get away with a lot and and, and but it's but it, it is really just a consolidation of techniques that sleazy groups have been doing for years yeah, absolutely agree, man. Uh, the other thing is uh, the other uh, the other thought that I had was actually a question: um, What is the money being spent on, and how long does it take uh, to, uh, you know, how many labor hours does it take to produce 
these individual ads that end up getting micro-targeted to uh, a thousand people or fewer, or you know, just ads in general. Like, where does the money go? Does it go into labor? Uh, does it just go into exorbitant uh, fees? Uh, what you know? What? I, yeah, I'm yeah. You might know the answer. I, to you this know, question. I can't. I can give you some some high level answers uh, because I'd have to do the research. Yeah, because the nice thing about campaign finance is you can research these things. You can find out like how much Trump is pay paying Brad Parscale to run these ads. They spent 16 million on the actual Facebook advertising. And this is now like disclosed in Facebook's ad li ads library. There's a lot. The one thing, you know, like I, the only part of Facebook that like doesn't need to be burnt down is probably their ads library, which is a pretty nice way to search and understand things. But as Julia found, there are challenges in, in like, this is a deeper piece of analysis of data and but Facebook gives you a lot of data what what you could get from like the FEC would be uh, what the firms are getting paid that are doing these and this is something you know I'll come back to this Bloomberg thing in a second um, they're probably paying Parscale and his related companies it might be multiple companies like a lot of um, you know kind of like there's there's these Republicans who aren't heavily ideological they're just kind of they want to make money and they don't want other people to get in the way. And the thing is, when you live in a society, there's a little more rules and often the ways people make money are these sleazy operations. Like I like to call Perscale a cut rate affiliate marketer, which is a, a little bit of a slight because he's probably a pretty good affiliate marketer. Um, but he was the guy Trump could get when no one thought that he would win in, in, you know, like 2015. Right. Um, but they used these, these tactics, which are pretty sleazy, uh, and they were very effective. And he's making fat bank now from the Trump campaign. In fact, there's stories of him, like of Trump coming after him and like, oh, I, like almost, I think physically, um, when he realized how much money Parscale was making. Now, part of it is sometimes uh, agencies are also billing for the actual ads and they're paying for them through their own lines of credit or whatever, right? So sometimes you, an agency, it looks like they made 10 million, they only made 1 million. But Parscale is significantly upscaled through the Donald Trump campaign. Um, to do that many ads, one of the things the article does point out is that they're not all uh, original. A lot of them are just slight variations, like variations in text. And my thought is just as we on this uh, show explore different political technology, there is so much ad tech that works with Facebook because there's so much money involved that I'm sure there are tools, you know, like I use Action Sprout to field a lot of variations of ads very quickly, um, but it's only doing a certain thing, right? There's the kind of ad tech though to replace my name or my demographic like one of the things that judd has written about is that they were using uh, ads targeted towards women that talked about women um in text of the ads and you're not supposed to do that you're actually not supposed to address the demographic and this is something facebook does i think it's it's really to limit the effectiveness of your ads and also to make them less creepy right um and but the Trump campaign really gets away with that kind of stuff. So they're just kind of subbing in, you know, the location or some uh, piece of text that changes the, the meaning or the, in, the uh, conversion of the ad just a tiny bit for different demographics. Um, they're doing, uh, you know, changes to the images. Um, so it's a lot of work. This is like a real ad operation. It's like basically someone with an ad agency is working for Trump, right? It's probably 
you know, between five and 20 staff members is just my guess. And they might have other partners. Like there's a firm called Targeted Victory. I don't know if they work with Trump. I'm just using them as an example. They work both for business and for conservative politicians or Republican politicians, but they're more like Chamber of Commerce-ish, um, I would say. But the thing is, is that all of the Republicans are pretty rabid right when it comes to, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's not much choice anymore. You kind of, if you're working for Republican circles, you're now working for Trumpists. And, um, you know, that kind of agency might have 100 staffers, but they would have multiple clients and they might, you know, they might work for Trump or they might work for like, there's not even another big Republican campaign. I'm not going to, they wouldn't work for Bill Weld because they're not large enough. Uh, he's not large enough. So this is, is a real money business when you're working for Republicans. Um, when you're not working for Republicans, if you're working for corporate Democrats, it can also be big business. When you're working for progressives, like, it can be a struggle to get by. Um, and I think, I think, I, I don't think that that's a remarkable um, opinion or a fringe opinion. We're coming um, from you live in the trenches. And the trenches, Adriel right, versus exactly. the oligarchs is all about analyzing all this stuff uh, from within uh, the deep trenches uh, and the, uh, you know, and we can, we can smell the stench of the we are, we are We are a voice screaming from the belly of the beast. Yeah. Um, so one of the things uh, that, again, I'll come back to the Bloomberg point, but there's an infographic in this article that says the topics that dominate Trump's Facebook ads. And this, I think, is actually the piece that's most important for those of us who are more uh, ideologically motivated. Um, you know, we're talking about firms that are money motivated. Uh, my firm is very ideologically motivated. I'm personally very ideologically motivated. Um, and so this, this, is, this is big for me. So attacking the media was uh, mentioned more than 30,000 times. It looks like, like almost like 40,000 times. Uh, immigration, almost 40,000 times. Uh, impeachment was huge. Then the economy, then socialism. And socialism was mentioned like, looks like about 12,000 times, right? So that is um, pretty fucking insane because if you're freaked out that, you know, uh, nominating Bernie Sanders means that, uh, you know, Trump will be able to call him a socialism and uh, socialist, socialist will stick. He's already doing it and it's already sticking or they wouldn't keep doing it. So um, it's not about you. You have to win on your message. There's no defending against Trump. He will. He will annihilate you with false information because they can and they do and they have done it and it works. Um, and this also, it's extremely frightening that he's attacking the media so consistently for year after year because that is how you like create fascism. You know, you 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 eliminate the independent media. So he's a he's a dangerous, dangerous person. Um, but uh, here's how Michael Bloomberg and his uh, ad campaigns are copying President Trump. And I, maybe I shouldn't say copying President Trump because they're all copying each other. I know from work that I've done with partners and, and discussions with partners that animal content is some of the most uh, engaging and can get people to give money or give their personal information. So Trump has all of these ads that are about like uh, Trump making cruelty to animals a federal crime. Now, we all know that he's like opening up trophy hunting, that his sons are trophy hunters. You know, uh, he does not care about animals. He's like, you could shoot, shoot bears that are like sleeping in their den, hibernating, just go in there and shoot them. Uh, and, uh, but these ads are cute pictures of dogs and that he uses this to 
uh, get people to sign a petition and give their email address away. So folks who, uh, who spend time on social media may have seen there's a ton of organic content going around with Mike Bloomberg and dogs. And uh, Mike Bloomberg has all of these ads that are about Mike saves animals, and they're all cute animals, both cats and dogs. Uh, so, so I, I don't, I want to see how many times cats versus dogs for Trump versus Bloomberg. But Bloomberg has the money to pay the best ad agencies in the country to produce ads for him, and that's what you're seeing. So, um, Trump's game is easier because he he can get information through invoking anger. Uh, Bloomberg is a little bit more, uh, you know, has to be happier, except they can make people mad at Trump. Um, so uh, another story that popped up this week was uh, the EFF uh, coming out with a report that uh, shows that the Ring doorbell app is, quote, packed with third party trackers. Uh, they actually found that uh, Branch.io, Mixpanel, Apps Flyer, and Facebook are all collecting data uh, from your Ring device. So there's already this problem with Ring that it's creating a, a ground level surveillance network and, and partnering with the police, um, but it's also sending all this information back uh, to these other companies. And the crazy thing is, is that like, these are companies that then like aggregate and sell that data again. And it's not it's not scary in the sense that uh, this data shows like when you go in and out of your house and who passes by, you know, when someone's passed by or uh, in the case of the data they're sharing with Facebook, when you turn the app on and off, like so when you're checking it. Um, it's not it's not even so much that they can then take that data match it to your name and all your other online activities to basically know exactly you know what you're doing and where you are and who you're with. Uh, right, because if you're walking up to your doorbell and it's like uh, sharing with uh, with one of these companies, a lot of the data is like when it turns on and off, right? But you know, it's like they know when you're. It's like Santa Claus data, right? It knows uh, when you've been sleeping. It knows when you're awake. Um, and the the other. I issue, think it's more like Minority Report. I, I don't it is know like, why. It's more like Minority Report in the sense because the the the. The thing that because I think it is, can become is, predictive. It is predictive because what they use it for, the reason they're collecting it and the reason they're selling and sharing and aggregating it is because they, they say they then anonymize it, right? And they do anonymize it. They don't put your name on it, but they put your most intimate uh, features like how you live and breathe. Like, you know, it's really, really intimate. It's almost like once you get to ring, I feel like it's like biometric data because it's about movement and not that biometric data isn't being shared like crazy already by, by these companies. Right. But ring EFF thinks ring is particularly bad here. It's pretty problematic. It's pretty, pretty creepy. And what they use it is to predict what you will buy what you want, what will satisfy your needs, so then they can sell you those things, right? So fuck capitalism. Um, and then uh, let's jump right from that mood to our tech tip, which, which involves some of the inner workings of my business. So uh, this show is, is sponsored by the Adriel Hampton Group, which is my consulting firm. We do marketing work, uh, particularly for progressive politicians. Um, and the, uh, or Progressive political uh, ideas, I think, is is the best way to describe what our what our real mission is. Um, but 
when you get down to the nitty gritty, uh, at one point I had a service and we were calling it um, Action Sites. And it was like WordPress websites paired up with Action Network, which is like a, a kind of an online digital toolkit that allows you to store uh, activist information. And, you know, the website's then like the front end. And when you put those two pieces together, you could run campaigns on the web more easily. Um, that part of my business didn't go very far. I may do it again at some point, but I do like host and uh, help campaigns and organizations with their websites to some extent. And what I want to share is like, what do you do, say, if, if you're a consultant and you want to do the same thing, you want to help, you know, 10 local candidates with their websites and their data management, um, or what do you do if you're a more sophisticated campaign and you want to have something that'll like stand up to attacks and that you own? Um, you know, I see so many people, especially in the grassroots, like coming to you and they have things that like some volunteer owns uh, a critical asset to their campaign, like a Facebook page or a website or something like that. And what you really want to do is like own your own assets or be in a contract with a consultant who is managing those assets for you and, and the ownership of it should be clear. Um, but there's two solutions I want to mention that I uh, recommend for consultants and more sophisticated campaigns. One of them is, is WordPress engine. And the reason why is often campaigns, again, grassroots, uh, maybe more than others when they're volunteer driven, they'll, they'll have like a, hosting situation that is really only capable of being managed by someone with a lot of uh, technical acuity. Um, so the solution WordPress engine, it starts at like 30 bucks a month if you just have one website. So it's not cheap for a tiny campaign. So I say if you're a larger campaign and you, you, um, you know, take this stuff seriously and a lot of progressive politicians will need to run for multiple cycles. So I just say just get a website that's your name and you can keep changing it for whatever political cause uh, you're working on. And, um, you know, that's, that's more about the domain, I guess, but you, you can kind of adapt your site and change it, or you can swap it out. But this WordPress engine, WordPress is pretty easy to work with. If someone builds you a WordPress site, it's pretty easy for you to update, which is critical for any kind of long-term uh, organizing effort. And then um, by paying the subscription fee, you basically get the hosting and you also get the, um, uh, knowledge that you can ask for help uh, about your your website hosting and like it's whether it's up or down, uh, you know, all kinds of questions uh, from your hosting provider. So I, as a consultant, use a service that helps me with WordPress hosting called WordPress Engine. Um, another uh, solution that I think is really good and it's it's got a free version. It's called Cloudflare, and this is for again for more sophisticated. Uh, sites because what it helps with is one it helps uh, it can help with SSL certificates although WordPress engine does that as well um, it it's a DNS provider that allows you to all the upgrades in your site as WordPress engine uh, improves the uh, the hosting for your site. You don't have to ever go and update your record at like GoDaddy or Namecheap. Uh, your record kind of moves around uh, freely with Cloudflare plus WordPress engine. Um, so basically if you don't, uh, if you don't love the words DNS, SL, SL, CDN, uh, these are two solutions that will help you do this sophisticated web stuff that keeps websites running and stable and secure, uh, without, uh, having to be a super technical expert. 
if these things just sound too scary at all, then that's you know why campaigns hire consultants to do this stuff. Um, and I do want this uh, this show to be a resource for uh, folks who want to advance the technical skills of progressives uh, in the movement. <laughs> <laughs>